A quick thought about board games. For some, board games are an evening of fun with friends and family, where someone wins, somebody loses. But for serious game players, they compete to become better, to evolve their strategies, to master the game. The same can be said about business. In episode one of this season, the episode where we covered the wizarding world of Harry Potter, we linked that show to business and its relationship with the customer. Briefly, I mentioned competition, but in this episode, the last episode of season two, I want to dive deeper into competition and in doing so, also talk about strategy. Competition and strategy have been two ideas linked in time since we were all Neanderthals. Competition and strategy helped us evolve and survive and would eventually lead us to the world that we live in today. The reason we all have smartphones and computers, probably the device that you're hearing this show on, is due to competition and strategy. The tech world evolved to this stage and anything is possible simply by a click of a mouse or the tap of your finger. The theme park industry is no different. It's just like a board game. Pieces moving and dice being thrown. A player takes a chance and he makes a bet. Sometimes it's a gain. Sometimes it's a loss. Then the move goes to the next player. And their strategy changes according to what's just been played. Do they need to keep a lead? Do they need to catch up in order to survive into the next round? The Walt Disney Company has been playing this game with Universal long before there was a Wizarding World. And in the late 1990s, Disney played their turn and came up short, allowing Universal to plan its strategy to create serious competition. This is the story of the late 1990s and two brand new theme parks created from direct competitors. And more specifically, this is the story of Beastly Kingdom. My name's Josh Taylor, and you're listening to season two of my podcast, The World That Never Was, a show about the ideas that the Walt Disney Company's theme park division never built and why. In this episode, we take a look at the most requested idea I ever got from season one, The Beastly Kingdom, a proposed large section of Walt Disney World's Animal Kingdom Park in Orlando, Florida. The easy answer to why it was never built, simply it was money. But I think there's more to this story, and we're far from seeing its end result. Tell me about, everybody talks about the positive parts of this, tell me what's wrong with Disney World. Is it too expensive? Well, I don't think much is wrong with Disney World. No, it's not too expensive. What you get here for what you pay, uh, the, the amount of time, the amount of attractions, the amount of things that you don't pay for once you pay your initial ticket is much less than even a movie ticket where you go for two hours. That clip is from Good Morning America during Walt Disney World's 25th anniversary in 1996. Smack dab in the middle of Michael Eisner's Disney Decade, a huge expansion time for the Walt Disney Company, not just at Walt Disney World, but globally. The interview is being conducted by Charles Gibson, and he asks Michael Eisner, 
a pretty bold question. Walt Disney envisioned this place as someplace that would never be finished, that there would always be room to grow. Is there an economy of scale here? Can it get too big? Well, I've been here about half the 25 years, yes. and I think we've more than doubled it. We've, uh, I don't know, put three or four billion dollars in the ground. We've opened up maybe 19 hotels, uh, uh, two theme parks, two water parks, a celebration in Newtown. I think you've talked about a little bit the Disney Institute, mm -hmm. which was inspired by Chautauqua in, in Western New York State. Uh, no, I, I don't think it can get too big. It can get too sloppy. It can get uh, a too uh, badly done. It can get the cast members can get too surly, none of which happens. I want to emphasize two things from that interview. Eisner mentions they had spent billions on Walt Disney World, and this was before they expanded with even more hotels and the upcoming Animal Kingdom Park. That park would open two years later after this interview. But that's not all that Eisner was investing in. He wasn't just focused on Florida. The Walt Disney Company opened a new park in Tokyo, and also one just outside of Paris. Disney was releasing an animated film every year. They'd created touchstone pictures for more PG-13 endeavors. Disney was expanding onto Broadway with Beauty and the Beast and other live stage shows would soon follow. They were expanding Disneyland with a brand new theme park and two new hotels. And they were also planning on starting their own cruise line. And those were just the ideas that made it. Like this show implies, there are tons of ideas that never see the light of day. But people were employed to come up with those ideas. Michael Eisner's Disney Decade was an amazing concept when it was first announced in 1989. It seemed like the Walt Disney Company was announcing something new and great every few weeks, some large-scale, never-before-seen project. The second thing I want to point out from this interview is the use of the term sloppy. With so many projects in motion at any given time, there was bound to be a lack of attention to detail and budget. With money spread thin and other projects like the Disneyland Paris Park losing money and some of the films bombing, plans for later years in the Disney decade were drastically cut back. And it impacted one of Disney's grandest ideas, the Animal Kingdom Park. And to use his own term, the Walt Disney Company had gotten sloppy. They sat down to play, created a strategy, and attempted their move. And the next player, already concocting their own strategy, made their move. We are proud to unveil Universal Studios Islands of Adventure. Universal and Disney had been competing since the mid-20th century in Southern California. This was an ongoing game. When Universal was looking to open up something in Florida, it was no coincidence that Michael Eisner quickly made plans to open a third Disney theme park at Walt Disney World that focused more on the magic of movies and how they were made. The Disney MGM Studios stole Universal's entire gimmick, 
They gave backstage tours like Universal. They did live stage shows showcasing how special effects work like Universal. And rides and attractions were based on more adult and non-Disney-related films. Basically whatever MGM owned. The Wizard of Oz, Alien, Singing in the Rain, and so on. This was the move Disney played. So when it came time to open a fourth theme park at Walt Disney World, Universal was ready and firing on all cylinders, waiting for that quote-unquote sloppiness. They'd spent over five years planning and constructing an entire resort around Universal Studios Florida. That would include the CityWalk shopping and dining district, their own hotels, and a new themed park, the Islands of Adventure. Long story short, Universal and Disney were competing, but it was a direct benefit for fans of either company. I've been a long-standing fan of the Disney theme parks. And don't get me wrong, I do love Universal Studios. But I've been talking, podcasting, and studying the Walt Disney Company for years. But I know that there are people just like me who love Universal in that same way. Enter Lee Malaby. I am Ali Malaby. I am the host of the unofficial Universal Orlando podcast that are just um, six and a half years through being the longest running Universal Orlando podcast ever. I asked Lee, fellow podcaster and super fan of Universal Studios, what he thought was needed for Universal to compete on Disney's level and what that pivotal turning point was for Universal Parks. Yeah, Universal, they were, they were never going to be able to compete with Disney with just one theme park. I mean, at that point, before Islands of Adventure, they didn't even have City Walk. It literally was the studio's park. And if you know anything about the history of, of how that came to be, you know, MGM Studios opened just before Universal Studios Florida, and that was a direct competition to Universal opening that park there. Um, so Disney had set their style out at that point that we're not worried, but we realized that there's this other company going to build a theme park down the road. We need to get in first to take that market away. Um, so then for Universal to then come back and try and compete again, yes, they needed a park and they needed something that was more of a traditional theme park than something like the studios park is. Islands of Adventure was the right move at the right time. It was a calculated risk and saw huge reward as Disney's budgeting issues were weakening their newer offerings of the late 1990s. While neither played the villain or hero in this theme park war, each had a strategy and each grew at a rapid pace because of it. I want to compare this idea of competition and strategy and business to another example and step away from the theme park industry. Because I feel like it's important to see and emphasize the possibilities from all angles. My example took place at nearly the exact same time. Two entertainment companies in direct competition, laying out their strategies and seeking to win a war. Wrestling was at its hottest during the late 1990s, and that era has been nicknamed the Monday Night War, as World Championship Wrestling... WCW, 
had secured a television slot on Monday night in direct competition with its rival, World Wrestling Federation, the WWF. I can understand if you're not into wrestling, or that you may not get the comparison. So, let me explain. The Monday Night Wars began in September of 1995, with the addition of WCW Nitro to the Monday Night lineup on the TNT Network just opposite of the WWF's Monday Night Raw show on the USA Network. Prior to this, the WWF was averaging around 2.5 million viewers on a weekly basis. Not too shabby. But at the peak of the Monday Night Television War, both shows were seeing anywhere from 6 to 10 million viewers watching. I have a friend, Ryan, who trained as a wrestler. He goes by the ring name Lionel Howlett for the NWL promotion, National Wrestling League. He's also a producer for their television show and has spent the last decade wrestling all around the country. So I asked him what made this wrestling war so popular. The competition in trying to, the two shows trying to outdo them, each other, um, it jumped off to the point where um, one week you would have something crazy happening on Raw, but then they would try to outdo it on Nitro the following week. And when you when you get that shootout type of situation on television, it makes it really hard to stay on one channel. So I think it was cool to be able to switch back and forth and really uh, try to see these two companies outdo each other. Um, and that led to some really great moments, some of the most important moments of of my childhood came out of that time. So. It was really cool to be able to switch back and forth and see those companies trying to outdo one another. Most people think of Hulk Hogan as being the face of pro wrestling, and I can't deny that. But his most famous match, his battle at WrestleMania three with Andre the Giant, the infamous moment where he picks up the seven foot four giant and slams him down, that moment was seen on television or in closed circuit broadcast in theaters by 450,000 people. The showdown at WrestleMania 17 between Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Rock was purchased on pay-per-view by over 1 million people, over double the amount of viewers from Hogan versus Andre. We can even go as far to say that wrestlers of that time period, the late 90s, had more crossover appeal than Hulk Hogan. Names like The Undertaker, The NWO, Stone Cold Steve Austin, Triple H, and The Rock became household names. Even if you didn't know wrestling, you probably saw someone wearing a t-shirt. Because the direct competition had put wrestling in the limelight. So much so that it could not be ignored by popular culture. Ryan pointed out a key moment in this competition that's one of his favorites. It's a moment where one company seized the opportunity and played the game just right. Like I said, some of the best moments came from those times. I mean, one moment in particular for me was when Mankind won the WWF championship uh, against The Rock and Stone Cold came out and just blasted him with the chair. And it was this crazy moment. And I remember always thinking about that moment while I was training to become a wrestler. And to this day, I mean, I probably watched that at least once a month just because it was such a pivotal moment in my life. And uh, 
you know, helped create me as a, as a wrestling character um, so many years later. So it's pretty cool. That moment where Mankind, better known as Mick Foley, won the WWF Championship on Monday Night Raw was an integral part in the WWF gaining the lead in viewership between the two shows. On WCW, if you'd been watching the show that evening in January of 1999, you would have heard this. If you're even thinking about changing the channel to our competition, fans do not. Because we understand that Mick Foley, who wrestled here one time as, as Cactus Jack, is going to win their world title. Oh, it's going to put some butts in the seat. Then later in the show, during their main event, they said this. If you're thinking about changing channels to our competition, we want to let you know that unlike us, they've got their show in the can. Their show's been taped. Later tonight, Mick Foley, who once wrestled here as Cactus Jack, is going to win their world title. WCW's strategy was to give away the taped result of the WWF's show from their live show. Their strategy was to give away everything the WWF was doing so people wouldn't flip the TV channel, and instead they would stay on their program until the very end. But their strategy failed. Just as Tony Schiavone, the WCW announcer that you heard there, finished his sentence, 600,000 people switched the TV channel to see this. When playing this game of competition, players move in and out of the lead all the time. Each new move is a reason to get behind your favorite player. For the WCW and the WWF at that time, they both grew in popularity. But eventually WCW would make too many wrong moves and have to close down. When the WWF became a monopoly, it never had to change or grow. New characters did come along but the stories were recycled, and the style of the television product as a whole never changed. I never hoped to see either Universal or Disney close down the way the WCW did. I don't want that for the theme park business. Right now, it's doing very well, growing, changing, and becoming something new again. Beastly Kingdom was designed to be a place of imaginary creatures, possibly an immersive experience in the world of fantasy. The land would have boasted a maze of creatures, a boat ride, unicorns, mythology, and its signature attraction, a roller coaster featuring a fire-breathing dragon, which would soar in and out of a large medieval castle. When the project was canceled, it seemed strange that the Islands of Adventure would have its own area based on mythology and fantasy, including the roller coaster based on two dragons fighting. The roller coaster titled Dueling Dragons, later it would be called the Dragon Challenge, and much of the mythological area of the theme park was rumored to have been worked on by those formerly working on the Beastly Kingdom, 
And while I can't state it as fact, I can only assume it makes sense. As the dynamic in the theme park industry right now sees Imagineers and Engineers for Universal jumping from park to park, working on projects like freelance artists. In fact, I was able to get a hold of an Imagineer for this show, who'd worked on Disney's Animal Kingdom, and recently helped in designing the world of Pandora, the newest area of Animal Kingdom, and coincidentally, right where Beastly Kingdom would have ended up. For confidentiality purposes, I won't state his name, but I will say that he helped design Pandora, as well as Universal's Wizarding World of Harry Potter, Disney California Adventures Hyperion Theater Frozen Show, and has had several other projects from different theme parks like SeaWorld and others. I asked him about Beastly Kingdom and the current landscape in the theme park war. Beastly Kingdom, it would have been amazing and gorgeous and a great addition to the park. Um, I think in this day and age, uh, we're seeing a shift of what the... uh, general public wants to see when they visit theme parks. Um, They want to go and experience something that they know and that they're familiar with, uh, which is why you're seeing a a rise of intellectual property usage within the parks. I know it kind of irritates the diehard theme park fans, which I'm one of them, but but unfortunately that's kind of the way the business is going these days. I, I, I don't know much about the future of Beastly Kingdom. Um, I wouldn't, say that it's dead because, I mean, not not many things in the theme park world actually die. Uh, they'll evolve in or they'll think of a ride concept for Beastly Kingdom and it may have gotten a new life somewhere else. Um, that kind of thing. So I don't know if it's going to happen at, Dis- at uh, Animal Kingdom um, I would say it's very unlikely that it's going to happen, um, but I don't know that 100% for sure. Originally, the Beastly Kingdom was to open with the Animal Kingdom Park on April 22, 1998, Earth Day. Islands of Adventure would open in May of 1999, just a little over a year later, and only 13 miles away. Since then, the game's completely changed. Moves have been played, and Disney no longer feels like Beastly Kingdom, as it once was in concept, would fit into the new theme park landscape. With the introduction of the Wizarding World by Universal, this new experience into the world of movie immersion really became the game they both started to play. Both parks asked themselves, how do we make guests a character in these worlds? not just passively wandering through, but interacting with the space around them. That's where the idea of using the Avatar film came into play. Imagine yourself walking into a forest of exotic plants that you've never seen, tasting foods that have bright alien colors, walking into a test lab or a military camp, and a hovering waterfall from mountains above. I'm not trying to sell you on this new Avatar-related land. 
I'm simply trying to acknowledge that the stakes are higher than ever, and the theme parks are being planned differently now than they were in 1998. This is a land that captures you from all sides, brings you into their story, and makes you a character within it. The Wizarding World opened in 2010, with its additions of Hogsmeade to Islands of Adventure. But in 2014, they added a new addition to the Wizarding World, Diagon Alley. Lee Malaby had this to say on it. And then that spawned Diagon Alley, which again takes what they did with Hogsmeade to, a, to, the, to the next level again, where when you're inside Diagon Alley, that thing that Walt wanted the Magic Kingdom to be, that when you were in it, you couldn't see outside and you were fully immersed in that reality. And I think you look from inside Diagon Alley, you are fully immersed in, in the world of Harry Potter. You cannot see outside. It is as if you, are, you have stepped into that movie or the pages of that book. It's, it's unlike anything else that we've seen previously. And obviously Disney are hoping that Star Wars Land will be the next level of that, which will hopefully in turn push Universal to do something even bigger and, and on and on and on. Here's my quick take on Beastly Kingdom. Would I love to see a medieval world with unicorns and dragons come to life at one of my favorite theme parks, the Animal Kingdom? Of course I would. <laughs> Are you kidding? I personally think it's something I'd really enjoy. But I see clearly that its loss was the catalyst for a rivalry to become tighter and for the competition to thrive. Beastly Kingdom, never seeing the light of day, meant that we saw the theme park industry grow in bold new directions and would rapidly move to make bigger and better ideas. Without this moment in time, where we lost the beastly kingdom, I don't think we would have ever gained the wizarding world of Harry Potter, or Cars Land, the world of Pandora, or the upcoming Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, or Universal's Super Nintendo World. Amusement parks all around the country are upping their game as well. The rides, the food, the music, the landscapes, everything. It all changed when Disney got a little sloppy and opened up the door for its competition. Maybe Universal has always been in second place. I can see that. But it's gained on Disney, and will continue to do so in the future, as this theme park rivalry continues. Those benefiting from these companies pushing its boundaries are the people visiting these destinations. And it's amazing to see that growth, and how far we've come in the last few decades. The game's still being played, Dice still being thrown, cards still being dealt. And personally, I can't wait to see what the future brings for both of these companies. I think it's good to have a little competition. It drives us, makes us think outside the box, to strategize, to be better. Make sure to check out network1901.com to see pictures, videos, links, and more information for all of the episodes to the world that never was.
Before we end this show, I just got to give a few shout outs. Lee Malaby from the unofficial Universal Orlando podcast, as well as Ryan Hood from the NWL National Wrestling League. And of course, my Imagineering friend. For Lee, I will leave any... For Lee, I'm going to leave a show link on our website, the show notes for this episode at network1901.com. And you can also find Ryan wrestling at the NWL over at fightkc.com. There you can get tickets to their shows as well as videos that you can see of him wrestling and others. I also want to thank my family and friends, especially my wife, for putting up with me. This season of The World It Never Was took up so much time. And I'm so gracious that she allowed me to take the time to do this show. And of course, I have to thank you for listening to the show. If you have any thoughts or questions about any of the episodes from seasons one or two, feel free to send them my way at network1901 at gmail.com. You can also hit me up on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, all at network1901 as well. I just want to say thank you, and I appreciate you listening. So in the meantime, keep on moving, people.